Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's November the 1st, 2021, and we have reached that momentous moment in world history, our moment of truth, at least according to the Financial Times, itself a monument to the truth of journalism. Uh, today, uh, October, uh, sorry, November the 1st, 2021, world leaders are meeting in, of all places, Glasgow, Scotland, for, according to CNN, our last best chance for the COP26 climate talks. The world leaders are meeting, or at least some of the world leaders. Um, the biggest emitter now these days uh, in 2021 is, of course, China. If you're watching this, you see the chart that China is now significantly larger emitter than the United States, the European Union, or India. But unfortunately, the Chinese leader, Xi Ping, wasn't um, in Glasgow today, he and he made no major climate pledges in a in a in a written um, in a written uh, address to, to to the rest of the uh, the delegates. Um, I'm quoting now from the Guardian: uh, China confirmed to the UN that it would bring its emissions to a peak before 2030 and then cut them to net zero by 2060. But Xi wasn't there to report on this. Um, and the news on the world is, of course, very depressing. By 2070, uh, 3 billion people, uh, the, the world will become uninhabitable for 3 billion people. Looking at that map was kind of curious because uh, most of those 3 billion are in North Africa or South Asia, but not in China. Um, so I'm curious as to China's role in the world today. I think that the COP26 um, conference today uh, brings that in some ways to the boil. And I'm thrilled that my guest on the show today is uh, a Vancouver-based journalist, Joanna Chu. She has a new book out, China Unbound, A New World Disorder. And I think the chaos in Glasgow... Um, associated with the lack of a, of a united world effort to, to combat uh, uh, the crisis of the climate reflects that. Um, as I said, uh, jo Joanna is the author of China Unbound, and she's joining us from Vancouver today. Uh, Joanna, apologies for such a long-winded introduction. Um, what does... Uh, Xi's non-appearance in Glasgow. Tell us about China's role in the world today and what you call in the subtitle of your book, A New World Disorder. Mm -hmm. I think his non-appearance is something as important as this climate conference when China is one of the world's top, you know, the pollution coming from China is not just the fault of the Chinese. It's because China China is still a major manufacturing hub, many, most of the world's goods. Um, so, you know, it captures the, the challenge many countries face in that China's part of the world community and it is in 
integral to issues, including but not limited to fighting. Um, but there are these growing tensions and there are serious uh, issues to um, take China to task to, you know, the two Michaels recently returned to Canada, but that doesn't mean it's the end of hostage taking diplomacy. It's the latest out of a series kind of harsh tactics and hostage taking diplomacy, death threat diplomacy from, from the Chinese state. So the question that the book tackles and China wants in context to is how did we get to this point where China is such a major world power and some would say a rising power but there are all of these urgent concerns about human rights abuses and crackdowns, not only on the Chinese people, but impacting foreigners, people all around the world who might not be, you know, actually kidnapped and detained by China, but they're receiving Chinese officials. Their family members back in China are threatened for things as small as um, if they're tweeting about Hong for example, um, Beijing is feeling like that it has claim over the free speech of people all over the world because it is so concerned about control and ending its rising role um, in on the world stage. Jonah, we've had a lot of shows about the crisis of democracy in the West, as you can imagine, less so perhaps in Canada where you are than in the United States or Western Europe. Mm -hmm. And from time to time, people have come on the show and suggested that China offers an alternative model. The person who perhaps most represents that is the Singapore-based uh, political strategist, Kishore uh, Mabubani. He's been on the show several times. He's quite controversial. In your mind, is there such a thing as a China model in terms of development uh, in the 21st century? In other words, is China the 21st century version of Bolshevik Russia in the 1920s or 30s, offering countries around the world, particularly developing countries, uh, an alternative to Western capitalism? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, having lived in China, actually, it feels like actually one of the types of capitalism, like living in Hong Kong, living in Beijing, going to Shanghai. As yeah, sorry, writer, sorry to I interrupt, thought... Joanna. Um, <laughs> Let me rephrase the question. When I say uh, Western capitalism, I mean Western democratic mm -hmm. capitalism. China right. is, of course, yeah. capitalist, but offering a, an authoritarian model. Mm -hmm. And if, so, yeah, so check out, like, I felt poor, like, in those cities. And wealth and power seems to be just, you know, very, like, overarching goals of society. Um, but like you said, uh, the Chinese leaders have always wanted capital and market reforms without being political changes. They want to retain um, their political system. And what they're offering, you know, this alternative they're offering to the world and to is, is that it can be uh, a major economic partner and trading partner to many countries without uh, judging the other political systems. And it's advocating that it doesn't want to dismantle the United Nations and other world organizations. But it wants um, countries with different types, governance types, to be on equal footing regardless of how it treats its citizens. It's very, very upfront about this. Um, it thinks it's foreign and meddling for, say, Canada or the U.S. to be concerned that there had been a, an internment of around a million Uyghurs and other Malays in Xinjiang. It feels that 
that shouldn't be up for discussion for the world to be concerned about. Um, the danger of that is um, China's economy might be weaker than some people think. It is a major source of foreign uh, investment in many and around the world, uh, which I explore in the book, The Road Project. And it's offering these loans to developing countries, uh, countries that have you know very poor human rights records of, of its own, without any strings attached, without um, kind of these robust uh, uh, considerations for uh, workers' rights or projects. So it might lead to this kind of world order where there's this source of funding where, you know, how you treat the world uh, really doesn't matter. You spent seven years as a foreign correspondent in China for your Canadian newspaper. Here we have a, a couple of people watching a couple of maps of China. It's obviously a huge country, many different traditions, mm -hmm. peoples, languages, cultures. In, and, and your book is made up in part of a, of a description, anecdotal and, and in some ways analytical of that experience. Is there one particular story, one episode that somehow captures that experience of, of, of living in China for seven years, Joanna, and reporting on it to the outside world? Mm -hmm. Well, a couple stories. I think one is that it just seems like there's more and more new laws that restrict people in China. The latest one that people in the West talk about is uh, this ban on internet gaming. So people under 18 can only go on these uh, online games for several hours on one weekend on Friday night, basically. Uh, something the state can do, it can lock uh, people out of online games. So, so things like that, it's like trying to new rules after new rules. But I was really interested as a correspondent there to see how people try to navigate these rules um, that govern so many different personal lives. Um, so one anecdote that stuck in my mind was talking to a woman from Shanghai. She was in her mid-30s, a successful businesswoman. She didn't want to get married in the future, but she wanted to have a kid first um, because she felt she was getting older. Um, but it's illegal in China to have a child out of uh, that child if you have a child and you're not married won't get a lot of the basic state benefits and um, ID documentation you pay a huge fine so what she did was she convinced a male friend to marry her on, on paper so that she could have this child legally many people uh, in China who are trying to find ways like loopholes who want live their lives the way they want um, not being constrained by all rules. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, diversity of experiences in China. And that kind of goes against some of these assumptions. Uh, some people, all 1.5 Chinese people are supportive of the CCP, that they're brainwashed, that, you know, they're foot soldiers for what Beijing is doing. I think China is cracking down more and more on civil society because there's more and more pushback and um questioning from people so they respond by you know trying to crack down harder and that involves yeah. people all around, around the world uh china lays claim to people who look like me um uh, foreign citizens but have some chinese background that it's almost like someone like me is fair game there's so many stories of people getting calls chinese police saying 
you put this on Twitter, you put this on Facebook, uh, put it down or else your family in China or your business related to China will suffer. So yeah, you are uh, you are in the book uh, with um, um, a story of, and I hope I pronounced this guy's name correctly, Badiukao who's um, an anonymous Chinese political cartoonist yeah. who was followed on a bus in in, in Australia, mm-hmm. even though uh, he's an Australian. Yeah, um, Melbourne. Yeah, uh, he's an Australian yeah. citizen. Um, uh, Joanna, my sense as a very much a non-China expert, but someone who's very interested in what's happening there, is that this, I don't know whether you would want to call it a conflict or a confrontation or a relationship between the community, the citizens of China, and the Chinese government is the major political story of certainly the first half of the 21st century. Do you think there's some truth to that? I have no idea how it's going to get resolved, if it's going to get resolved. But it's an incredibly, as you suggest, it's an incredibly complex and also important um, issue, isn't it? This very, whether it's frayed, um, whether it's hostile, this very complicated relationship between the people of China and the government of China. So I wanted to treat those questions with necessary nuance and providing like kind of concise social and political context because the risk of oversimplifying and mm. making stoking racism for, in one's hand and potentially leading to war is real. Uh, speaking with Americans, people who are part of the U.S. military, they're worried that conflict will break out. There are, you know, really outspoken uh, people of influence in the U.S. who really kind of are almost banging the war drum. Talk about this U.S.-China competition that's very existential as if China's rise and what it's doing can uh, undermine American identity, America's standing in the world. Um, so I think a lot of these conversations can get so abstract and get kind of so, you know, frenzied that we lose sight of the um, In the U.S., for example, some of the people who've been suffering because of these growing tensions between the two powers are Chinese students who have been cast under blanket suspicion. Um, students have been having trouble getting visas. Um, Donald Trump said that he basically thinks Chinese international students are potentially spies. Um, it's been a long-standing issue that even people with, you know, really distant family back are having trouble getting security clearance to get more senior jobs in the U.S. government because um, they're under suspicion because they look Chinese, even though into China. There's been cases like that. Um, so I provide these case studies and not just in the U.S., but from Canada and also Euralia because I think different perspectives, on-the-ground perspectives, and hearing the opinions and experiences of people of Chinese really help with these conversations. Because I do feel like we are at a pivotal point right now where things could either get worse and spiral and we could actually see conflict, or perhaps people can get smarter about China and try to address some of these really complicated issues with the tools they need. And disappointed, you know, actually traveling around the world, like talking to government leaders and officials and business leaders that the people acting on a policy all over the world aren't necessarily the people in those countries who are most knowledgeable about China. 
in fact, the people who are most knowledgeable are kind of shunted aside as compromised or um, they're not objective enough because they lived in China. But what we end up having is that people are, you know, Kamala Harris, like she pronounced Xi Jinping's name very wrong, like just basic things like the lack of familiarity with China is very apparent uh, in now, and that's not going to help matters when uh, we have, you know, these, there's a lot of nationalism and and extremism in China. So it's it's really just like a very tense situation where... Yeah, your, your, your point is well taken. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I began this show with a reference to a moment of truth when it comes to the environment. Uh, Gideon Rackman, the FT... Uh, geopolitical uh, columnist writes about a, a moment of truth over Taiwan is getting closer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I was struck over the weekend, I don't know if you saw it, the uh, interview by Dana Bash on CNN's uh, State of the Union with Secretary Antony Blinken, mm-hmm. in which they were talking in a, in a very odd way about American military mm-hmm. response to a Chinese invasion right. of Taiwan. And she mm-hmm. kept on asking yeah. him if America would respond militarily. How worried are you mm-hmm. about this growing conflict over Taiwan? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it is kind of exaggerated and overblown. Um, people, I see Taiwan, uh, experts of different nationalities who live there and work there, they tell me they're not very concerned about imminent, but more, you know, medium term in the future, that could be due uh, as things get more and more tense. Um, But, you know, lack of China knowledge that makes this such like a dumpster fire is that our top leaders like Biden is not familiar with U.S. U.S. Taiwan policy. Well, I don't think Joe Biden is very familiar <laughs> with anything. I mean, I think uh, that's what, what, well, he's no more or less familiar with China than he is with India or Europe or anywhere else in the world. He's just a rather, yeah. uh, rather old man. Well, I I can't really comment on it as a Canadian, not as voter. Or well, you're allowed to comment on this show. Uh, we're not an official U.S. <laughs> pub, uh, broadcast, uh, Joanna. Yeah, well, he did say erroneously that the obligation to defend Taiwan if China were to invade, and that's actually not the case. Um, so top leaders, no matter what you think about them and their overall, you know, you know, abilities as leaders, they don't know like the first thing often about, you know, China and its own country's policies towards China. And while meanwhile, like I said, the system deliberately silences and traits of suspicion people who can provide more and so we're in this position where china is very important like it needs to be part of the global economy and conversations like on climate change but then there's this increasing um fears about conflict breaking out while it seems that people who are going to make decisions aren't getting level of expertise among their advisors to be well informed in our next step forward. Um, so writing this book is really for the voters, for people who are politicians to get smarter on China and to help people figure out like what is, is kind of hype and what is actually real. And I argue that if we just look at the facts of what Beijing's doing, it's concerning enough. We don't need to make things up or in, in the case of many U.S. politicians, exaggerate what's happening in China. 
uh, Joanna, you begin the book um, uh, with a reference to the West. I'm quoting you. I use the term the West in this book intentionally because it's crucial to recognize the colonial histories in which modern frictions arose. Uh, the Western worldview was one where the East, encompassing Asia, North Africa, and the Middle East, represented newly discovered territories that early European colonizers depicted as static and undeveloped and therefore deserving of mm -hmm. domination. Do you think this cultural legacy of the experience of colonialization, I mean, the, the West, of course, didn't formally colonize uh, China, but they bullied mm -hmm. China throughout the 19th mm -hmm. and 20th century. Do you think this is still the key to making sense, at least, of China's view of the West? Mm -hmm. And I know yeah, that I when is. I say China's view of the West, that's somewhat of a generalization because it's very different from Chinese yes. citizens and Chinese leaders. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so definitely the CCP, like Chinese government leaders, definitely they have a lot of of not just you know western imperialism and feeling humiliated but also in the last few decades the culture um at a time when china was very closed to the world um there was basically civil war there was you know revolutionary conflict where torn apart there were uh you know sons uh reporting to authorities telling on their mothers that they weren't loyal to the states, and then to someone whose mom was hung because he he told on her basically that she ripped up Chairman Mao's portrait. So there's a lot of these deep traumas in of that's currently in power, um, both within just fear of disorder and instability, as well as look the way um, China was treated by the West in you know over a hundred years, a century of humiliation. And feeling like this is happening again, that finally China is becoming more powerful. And the West is lashing out, out of insecurity and jealousy and worry that it's going to uh, decline because China is rising. And that's definitely what the Chinese state says in its propaganda messages. Uh, on do you think there's any truth to that? Do you, uh, Joanna, do you, do, do you think there's any truth to that? I think there are people who are really, really genuinely concerned about human rights in China, civil society. There are people whose homes are in the last couple of years has basically become another Chinese city with the national security law that makes it so criminal to basically be critical of the CCP. There are people who worry about costs of China's rise, but those voices aren't the ones that are platformed enough. Um, I think there is some truth to you that people in America in particular feel threatened by China's power, regardless of how China uses its power or that it, um, you know, is over the human rights of its citizens and uh, people around the world. I think regardless of that, I think there, there is going to be this sense of uh, insecurity. China is going to overtake the U.S. It's already the second largest economy in the world, and it, unlike the U.S., as China is a develop, developing country, so it still has a lot of room to grow, whereas the U.S. is, you know, very developed already. And there's a fear that it's going to become stagnant and then China will rise. Um, so is, um, I think people have to really confront themselves and their own biases and what, whether what they're saying is out of genuine concern.
concern for for democracy or whether it's kind of from a place of insecurity like what do you think mayor not only insecurity but you suggest this new world order disorder um may have something to do with racism um you mm-hmm. say all the while beijing uses racism from the west to def- uh, to deflect criticism do you think that these claims that the West is racist towards China and towards Asian people in general, is there some truth to that too? Of course, uh, perhaps the party is using it uh, to whip up hostility and insecurity, Mm -hmm. but is there some truth to it? Yeah, so I think when there is obviously racism, there's been such a spike all over the world against people of Chinese descent related to COVID-19, scapegoating. Uh, people who are Asian for spreading the disease. Uh, Canada, actually, um, it's been traced like COVID entered Canada through the American border, um, not from flights uh, from China. Um, So I think this racism and people who do oversimplify and conflate the views of the Chinese people, of the Chinese state, saying we need to fight China, we need to like all this or that, I think it really plays into actually what Xi Jinping wants. He wants um, the loyalty of the Chinese diaspora. They're saying like Chinese embassies are actually writing press releases saying that there's so much racism going on. Um, You should support what we're doing. We're going the interests of Chinese people all over the world. And and also, it's also a party line to say that any of China is racist. Um, and that can silence people who are might might be kind of conflicted about what to do. Like, is it racist to criticize what Beijing is doing? Is when legitimate criticisms do trigger uh, often mm-hmm. racist and xenophobic responses. I, I think that's our fault. I think failing to separate the state and the people um, makes it more difficult to have any kind of productive you know, building a multilateral countries working together to speak up on things like Xinjiang, Hong Kong, human rights, uh, because they're worried that, you know, because there's racism in their countries, that it's going to be that much harder to be critical because they don't want to also be seen as supporting racism. And so we really need to make sure the language is as precise as possible. It's as simple as using CCP or Beijing or Chinese government instead of China. It's often a lot of media still says China says this, China says that. Uh, but you know, you have to be more careful in our language to really just always put on that. Because especially since China is not a democracy, what Beijing does is not reflective of what its people want. Yeah, um, and your book does do, even though it's called China Unbound, I mean, it's hard to simplify a title. Um, Your book does make an effort to be as balanced as possible. You note that uh, many people in China, uh, not just in China, but observers of Chinese politics, um, they hope that once the the current leader Xi stepped down after the customary 10-year term, his successor would and I'm quoting you here, would discontinue the sweeping crackdowns on civil society. But then on March 10, 2018, Xi won a lifetime mandate to rule. Here we have this Xi mm-hmm. uh, Jinping. 
What's your take on him? He's not Stalin. He's not Mao Zedong. Is he more akin to a Putin, to a Donald Trump, to a Bolsonaro, mm-hmm. these new sort of semi, semi, well, certainly deeply authoritarian leaders who are much more sophisticated in their management of power? How would you, how would you mm-hmm. define this? This this new leader in China is he is he the the model for the Putins and the Trumps of the world or is he uniquely Chinese? Mm-hmm. I think the comparison to Putin makes sense. Like Putin has really consolidated power more than uh, his predecessors. Um, he has consolidated power and made you know the military. He like reshuffled it so he has has more control over it. And he has really pushed out his major critics, like people who could be in opposition to him uh, through, as uh, some say, his anti-corruption campaign. Clearly, many Chinese officials were corrupt, um, but by targeting certain officials, high-profile ones, uh, who pose a challenge to him, he's been able to really consolidate power where it's pretty much impossible right now for China experts to know who could be a a viable alternative leader to him in the future. He's really gotten rid of those high-profile potential um, opponents. And, and he has pushed forward this change constitution that he can rule for the rest of his life. Uh, so again, like this is very unprecedented. Um, it is similar to what Putin's doing, you know, you know, you know, poisoning, trying to kill. Uh, opposition leader in Russia. Um, so China power is basically indefinite right now. And that gives people less hope because in the past, uh, there were terms of 10 years and but, but, some leaders were more op- open than others. Yeah, but Joanna, I take your comparison with Putin, but he's not, Xi, uh, Xi is not running the kind of kleptocratic system, rotten kleptocratic system that Putin is running, is he? I mean, he's running, as you suggested, uh, one of the two global superpowers in the world, an incredibly dynamic, efficient economy that may now become or is becoming the largest economy in the world. So he's not just a a, a vulgar kleptocrat, is he? What's in it for him? Why is he doing this? Is there a cult of personality mm-hmm. or perhaps I think, a cult of anti-personality around this man? He, oh, there, he is building a cult of personality around himself. Like I reported on, you know, trying to have his face and image all over uh, the country in all of these gift shops, uh, more so, much more so than previous leaders, uh, more akin to how uh, cultivated this cult of personality. But um, you're right to point out that, you know, so the CCP, and you look at how it domestic uh, governments can be praised uh, for many things. There are really legitimate and effective uh, policies that the Chinese government has been implementing. And I've seen it myself where I went to really impoverished villages, places where because of the soil or the climate, it's it's impossible to farm. And the party having all of this unusual control over different governments and people have moved villages from the mountainside 
to closer to the city and uh, these people, free housing, um, you know, jobs. So it's something that also it's interesting about a one party state, like what they do, the resources they can manage without, you know, the more messiness and the and the slow speed of democracies. Um, and it is to providing uh, more economic opportunities to the people, because I think that's part of it. It's desire for, con for control and um, like I said, the cultural revolution was very, very traumatic. Like many, many people died, family members were torn apart. And, you know, Xi Jinping, his cuted during the Cultural Revolution, his sister uh, was detained. And he said in speeches that he doesn't want to see a disintegration of China like the Soviet Union. Uh, he feels that if he lets go of this, you know, almost total control, that things will fall apart, that uh, allowing criticism will weaken China. And, and but Along with that, because of, I think, of all that, and there are some really interesting and effective government policies that look at uh, increasing the quality of life for the Chinese people, um, support of the Chinese people, and not to foment uh, dissent and criticism and instability in China. So the picture there is very complicated. Um, I, you know, I'm sure you know the picture in Russia is also very complicated, but in China, definitely, when you look at surveys, you know, how people feel government, it is still quite positive. They feel that they will become richer under the current Chinese state uh, than their parents, and that their kids are off than they were. Complicated, uh, which might be the word, the C word to explain your book, China Unbound. It's a wonderful book, Joanna. It's already getting rave reviews. Finally, I'm curious... As to your own personal story, you, you, you note in the book that some 140 years ago, Canadian officials tricked my great-great-grandfather into leaving his home in southern China for the promise of mining gold in Canada. When he arrived after an expensive journey, he found he had little choice but to toil alongside thousands of other Chinese men to build the Canadian Pacific Railroad, a, a story not untypical mm -hmm. of profound injustice you spent seven mm -hmm. years in China. You grew up in Canada. What did your experience in China and indeed the writing of this book teach you about yourself, your Chinese heritage, the history of your family, and your role now as a journalist, both making sense of China to the outside world, explaining its complexity and not falling into any vulgar stereotype of either idealizing or denigrating the Chinese state. Yeah, thank you so much for your kind review of the book and for obviously drawing out these passages. Um, definitely, I think it's unfortunate because I think people like me, um, China, Beijing should actually be happy that I have this platform, that I can be a journalist trying to bridge, um, you know, my Chinese culture backridge background with what I know about the West, have Canada and being Canadian. Um, but unfortunately, I think things politically have become so tense and so dominated by nationalists in China. People with trying to provide these nuanced perspectives and on the ground reporting uh, that I was able to do in China. Um, journalists like me are have been getting kicked receiving death threats. Uh, a couple Australian journalists, they had to flee to their Australian 
Cities in Shanghai and Beijing. Um, as country relations between Australia and China got worse and worse, uh, journalists are one of the targets, um, uh, one of the points of leverage that Beijing has to try to fix pleasure. So kicking out journalists, kicking out researchers and academics, threatening their families. Um, myself, like I feel worried. Like I am as critical of the West as I am to to Beijing, as we've discussed. Um, but even voices like mine, I think, uh, are being, um, you know, silenced or, you know, efforts to silence voices. Well, that's the science. test of a great so, journalist like you, Joanna. You piss off everyone, both, both sides. <laughs> yeah, I really like, piss if off everyone. If you're disliked by both sides, then you must be doing a good job. And certainly this book is really one of the, the books which will provide people like myself who don't know that much about China with a really interesting and I think fair, fair balanced account of what's really happening in China, both its strengths and its weaknesses, its threats and our misunderstanding of it as as a threat. It's, it's an excellent book. I think it's going to win some prizes. Congratulations on the new oh, book. Um, uh, Joanna, you're in Vancouver at the moment. Lots of time to read, even though it's a beautiful city. What else should people be reading in addition to China Unbound um, in uh, in November 2021. Yeah, so again, like spot people who kind of, because of their personal backgrounds, like straddle both worlds, China and the West. And I think reading more of these works can provide that naturally more complicated perspective. So two books that do this is um, uh, Caroline Ken. She, for Bloomberg, used to be for New York Times in Beijing, and she wrote a memoir uh, about her family through all of these tumultuous last decades I, I talked about, the Cultural Revolution, what that, the one-child policy, what mm. that meant to her. Um, I think, think that really provides people with what it is like to be Chinese in, in China today. Um, I think that can help answer people's questions about, about what China might be, because the current you know, Xi Jinping can rule for life. I think eventually when younger generations in China come to power, it's going to look different. Like, and she's a millennial writing about millennials in China and from who are young in China, I do feel more hopeful about a different direction that China could go towards. Um, and another book by another Chinese citizen, Shen Yang, she talks about what it was like to be an illegal daughter. So she was a second child and her family because they didn't want to get in trouble, they gave to relatives to raise. And she was basically abused by her relatives. And she was living in fear that Chinese, you know, the rural enforcers will find her, the villages being raided and officials checking for illegal children. Um, so that's not a great, you know, firsthand account of, of China's complex someone who is a young Chinese woman that I would recommend. So thank you for asking. Good Good books on the complexities of China. A third book is, of course, your new book, China Unbound. Joanna Chu, thank you so much. Continue, Joanna, to upsetting people on both sides. We need, <laughs> uh, we need honest um, and brave journalists like yourself to report on the complexity of the world. You're doing a great job, and I hope you'll come back on the show in the not-too-distant future to talk more about China. There's a lot more to discuss, and no doubt yeah. this very complicated relationship and perhaps very worrying relationship, especially on the military front between China and, and, and the United States is going to 
be the story of the 2020s. So we'll have to have you back on the show to tell Mm -hmm. the truth. Thank you so much, Joanna. Look after yourself. And again, congratulations on China Unbound. It's an excellent book. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for this conversation.